Resonant Zones is a podcast about echoes and pulsations between people, ideas, and artifacts, hosted by Adam Wetterhunt. For more information about Adam's work, teaching, and philosophy, visit Adam's blog, asatkora.com, spelled A-S-A-T-K-H-O-R-A.com. Welcome to Resonant Zones. My guest today is Mark Spybee, also known as Dead Voices on Air, who has been releasing environmental, improvisational, and experimental music for the last three decades. As a self-professed non-musician, he has worked with some of the foremost improvising experimenters across various scenes. He has collaborated with Zoviet France, Download, Can, and so many others. He has released, to my haphazard counting, easily close to 100 albums. This is my first time talking to Mark, despite listening to his music since I was a teenager. I first heard about Dead Voices on Air in a time when my ears and mind were being turned inside out by the first two download records, Furnace and the Eyes of Stanley Payne, recorded by Mark along with Phil Western, Kevin Key, and Dwayne Godel. These records still today sound unlike anything else I have ever heard, and at the time I was totally at a loss to understand these beautiful, punishing records. I suppose I still am. At the time, I happened upon a copy of Mark's first few records, New Words Machine and Hafted Mall, two records that changed my life. This was music about texture more than melody or structure, layering echoes of voices and percussion on top of each other, a postmodern tribal industrial sound that enraptured me. It was my first real introduction to ambient music that wasn't meant to be a backdrop to anything, but to transport you to an entirely different world. Mark has been extremely prolific during this time of global pandemic and quarantine, including recording new versions of those early records that meant so much to me from the mid-90s. I talked to Mark about his creative process over the years, learning from Holger Chuke how to improvise on stage, what it's like to dig up old work, using music as time travel, playing Godzilla as an instrument, in a bit of homage to several friends and collaborators who have passed away. This podcast has been made to coincide with the release of Another New Words Machine on June 4th on Mark's Bandcamp page, deadvoicesonair.bandcamp.com. You can also pick up Welcome to Shap, Isolation Songs, and Mark's new collaboration with Anatoly Grimberg, that same day. Right now you can get Mark's entire discography for under $110 on Bandcamp. And if you're at all intrigued by our discussion today, I've gotten decades of listening out of his work and encourage you to invest your time and your ears in his music. I'm Adam Wetterhahn, and welcome to The Zone.
thanks for joining me today. You're welcome. How's the quarantine been for you? Um, it's uh, surprisingly peaceful. Um, mm. I don't, I, I'm not really sure that one can ever prepare yourself for something like this, can you really, if you think about it? Mm. It's like, you know, I took a decision very early on that I was going to stay away from people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And mm-hmm. as much as as much as I like people and being around people, it's been surprisingly easy to be honest. Um, I'm, I'm the kind of person who who needs and likes to be doing things all of the time. So mm. I've been I've been doing things all of the time, and um, I'm kind of liking the quiet. So when I go out for a walk, it's nowhere near as busy as it normally is. Mm-hmm. Things like that. Yeah, you you mentioned you. Um you're retired. Is that a pretty recent development or have you been retired for a couple of years? I've been progressively retiring. I, I retired okay. a year ago and then I went back for a year part-time and now I've uh, fully retired except for some teaching commitments. So Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like what you say about being hard to see this coming. Um, you know, we knew that the virus was coming over here to the United States. We also knew that the response probably wasn't going to be very good. Uh, yeah. politically it just got way worse much faster than anyone expected and actually the prison where i work teaching mindfulness and yoga and philosophy uh is one of the worst outbreaks in the united states and in the world that act, that that prison camp got like 80 percent infection rate 2,000 people infected that sort of thing so wow really wild so i've been working at home for a couple months it's uh, it's tough. It's difficult for people, mm-hmm. and uh, you know. I think, um, yeah, I think you're right to um, suggest that the response is entirely predictable based on uh, politics. So, mm-hmm. not to get too political, but there was mm-hmm. a there was an article that I read that did point out that the four countries that seem to be doing the worst have got Johnson, Trump, Bolsonaro, and Putin as leaders. Mm-hmm. So, Absolutely. Yeah. I'm with you on that. Um, but had you started doing performances on Facebook Live before quarantine? Um, no, I'd, I'd, I'd never really thought about doing it, to be honest, because um, it's very um, limited in terms of what you can do. But I, I, I was thinking about why, why, why did I start to do it? And then... In the first week of lockdown, I did uh, uh, first couple of weeks of lockdown. I actually did two online chats with Kevin Key for his Patreon channel. We had a great time, and lots of people were interacting with us. And it suddenly felt like, well, you can still generate community by doing this thing online. So I thought, uh, you know, I don't know. I was bored one night. Switched on the, mm-hmm. tried a button on Facebook that I've never tried before. And the next thing you know, there's a bunch of folks kind of interacting with me and the people I know and people I like. And, and so I just started to play and it was um, spontaneous because it was literally when I, when I started, it was stuff that I was actually working on just before I went online, if you know what I mean. So it was all very mm-hmm. spontaneous. And then, then I asked folks who were sort of tuning into me, um, well, if they would like me to play anything in particular, you know, and I got a few requests and I thought, oh, sh- you know, what have I started? <laughs> um, uh-huh. 
because uh, there's parts of your past you want to revisit and parts of your past you probably don't, you know. You know, I, I, I sort of like uh, launched into it, I guess is the way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's, it's a double-edged sword because it sounds rubbish, you know. The actual audio, that you, the feed that you get, I think most people understand that it sounds rubbish. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I, you know, I'll be flicking through Facebook and I'll see other people do it and they've got fancy lights and they've got props right. and I'm thinking, yeah. I do not want to get into this. This is not a replacement <laughs> for playing live. This is me in my studio saying, you know, hello. Uh, felt very natural, to be honest. And you started recording them at some point. Yeah. So that I've, you could have better audio. I did. I, did. I, um, I thought, well, yeah, I'll just, I'll just run it. And see what happens, and because uh, they sound really good, <laughs> yeah. The computer, so um, and so isolation tapes one and two are on Bandcamp. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, and then Welcome to Shap also comes from those sessions. Yeah. Well, you know that was an interesting one because somebody said, uh, you know, somebody said play some Skinnered, and so <laughs> I uh, had a glass of wine, tried to reproduce Freebird. <laughs> and um, and then they said, play some of Shap. And I'm like thinking, oh, yeah, what, what do you mean? Shap's got 21 tracks, you know. <laughs> so some of them last about 12 seconds. Um, mm-hmm. So I start, yeah, so I I did the Shap thing and, and I started with track one on that and I ended up with track 20. I didn't do all 21 of them. I failed miserably. Um, <laughs> but one of the tracks was essentially just a remix of another track, so. Okay. Um, and I actually found the discipline of doing it really helpful. I was talking to Kevin about this. We were having a chat last night, actually. And uh, I was saying, for me, getting through this creatively has been as much uh, about disciplining myself to do it than it has about feeling inspired to do it, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's not normally how things feel to me. It's normally mm. I've been working and I come back from work. I might go in the studio for a little bit mm-hmm. um, or I might not for three months. You know, it's just, that's how it works. And, um, mm-hmm. but with this, I, I think I, I think I've probably been working in the studio every day. Mm. So mm-hmm. it's, uh, it was, it felt, it felt really helpful to have a structure and discipline and to focus in on a project that was ridiculous as trying to recreate an album that we did in 1994, you know. Sure. And to to keep showing up day after day and keep importing those ideas and working with them. How did it feel to reach back into the past in that way? Oh, very strange. Um, yeah, because I think there are different shades around this, but I, I think in broad terms... I, I know two groups of musicians, one who likes their own music and another who doesn't. And I'm definitely in the latter camp. So mm. there's no way that I can listen to my own music I mean, unless I'm doing it, like I've just said, for a project. Because all I ever hear are the imperfections. And, and so I'd relegated those recordings, Shap, New Words Machine, Half Did More, the first few albums, to history really and when people actually talk about them in glowing terms to if i was going to be totally honest i'd i'd feel you know upset about it because it's like well why Mm. why don't you why don't you like the stuff that i'm doing now 
Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was very. It's a very strange feeling to introspectively reflect back on who you were and how you worked. I mean, for me, I think what I immediately got into was the where where was I, and uh, because that was so different, and so I got into the feelings of you know living in a certain place and. Mm-hmm. You were in Vancouver then. Yeah, Is I was. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Living in a certain place, what was happening? Who I was, you know, um, working with and being around, and uh, mm-hmm. and it, and that and that helped because you know the, it was a genuinely uh, exciting time for me, mm-hmm. creatively and artistically. Mm-hmm. You know, to go from having nothing released within the first two years to having a a bunch of stuff released really quickly, I was embarrassed. To say that I think Haft, uh, Hafted Wall came out before New Words Machine, even though it was recorded after it. Mm, but, mm-hmm. but New Words Machine actually came out two months after Hafted Wall on another okay. label as well, which was very, you know, you know difficult at the time because I'd signed sure. a, signed a five album deal with Invisible Records. And- I've actually got a poster on the wall behind me here that is your artwork. That's an invisible invisible made the poster. You know what I. I saw that and thought that looks very familiar. And then I thought, yeah. a couple of minutes ago, I thought, I know that poster. Yeah, I, yeah. I think I may have a copy of it. Uh, I mean, what was really nice about it's for me, this is an example about how the creative process works. So the artist that Invisible worked a lot with is a guy called David Babbitt, who at the mm-hmm. time worked for Touch and Go Records. He was the main art guy, and for a time, Invisible was distributed through Touch and Go. So they used David Babby, who I got to meet, got to know, and I'm still friends with him. And he periodically he'll do art for me, you know. And um, mm-hmm. so he did that poster. I mean, he did it from a piece okay. of art, a tiny fragment of a piece of art that I must have sent him. But I mean, he did it, and it's amazing. It's an example about how something that is actually probably about four inches big. Can look really good if you just blow it up. <laughs> wow! Yeah, yeah, it looks great in so the that's, size that it is. Yeah. To be honest, that's as much David Babbitt's work as it is. It's in fact it is David Babbitt's work. I did the original art, but he had the idea of blowing it up, so it looks totally different. The text and the textures and the stamp and such as you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah cool. Yeah, they're all, all from collages. You know, since this is to be released uh, to coincide with uh, a newer words machine, is there anything else you'd like to share about that record or that process? Just, yeah, just 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 to sort of like um, emphasize how primitive it all was, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, for me that was really important um, in retrospect uh, because what it demonstrated is that I could release it out, I could record an album with one four-track tape machine, one effects unit, a couple of microphones and a borrowed keyboard. Everything else were just toys, you know. Mm -hmm. So if you put a toy Godzilla right underneath a a contact microphone, it makes a fantastic noise. (laughs) And, uh, Mm -hmm. but it was, you know, it was just a personal labor of love. And I hope that... um, in some way that uh, that comes across. I, I think for me, the process of remaking it was at the same time hugely gratifying and in equal parts terrifying because how do you approach a track that's 20 minutes long? Mm-hmm. Well, I did discover that you approach it in segments. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> so you say, okay, the first X, y, X amount of time is slightly different to the next. Mm-hmm. And then I just took it and built it in segments. And actually the shorter tracks were more challenging than the longer tracks, as mm. it turned out, because the shorter tracks usually involved sounds that I, there's no way I could recreate some of the sounds because, you know, uh, I was literally, I mean, it's amazing how, how much that toy Godzilla was actually used on that record. <laughs> Godzilla <laughs> features prominently on the record then. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, what about, so you reissued New Words Machine maybe a decade ago with some uh, additional material. Does any of that show up on the new album? No, no, it doesn't. Okay. No. Uh, I just wanted to do the original stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think the additional material I, I culled from some dats that I had hmm. from recordings I did with Kevin. I mean, at some point in time, I may wish to revisit those dats because I've got probably four or five dats of home recordings of Kevin mm. in the various apartments that I lived in. And I was, there's no way I've used it all. There's no, there's no way, but uh, sure. it was, uh, it, that was intense. Yeah, that's that great. It was a re- really satisfying stuff. I mean, it was sort of blowing, coming off the Richter scale in terms of how hot the recordings were, because sometimes he was uh, making sounds on what this synthesizer that I'd, by this time I'd borrowed as well, that were just okay. loud. Is there was, one, uh, one piece of gear? Yeah. You mentioned the effects unit. Maybe something else besides anything other than Godzilla that had a big impact on the minimal setup and how the sound came together. Because, I mean, I listened to the original record last night loud on headphones, and it is like a cavern. I mean, it is a deep space. Yeah. Uh, how did you get it to sound so huge? Oh, it's uh, I can remember, um, you know, when I licensed it, I licensed it through this guy called Jerry uh, in uh, Toronto. He had a label called Death of Vinyl. That released something by Soviet France and Rapoon, I think. Hmm. He's a really nice guy. But I remember Jerry like saying to me, same, you know, he had this sort of uh, self-deprecating sort of sense of humor. I remember him saying something to me like, you know what, Mark, the thing about your stuff is as long as you put a little, enough delay on it and as long as you put enough reverb on it, it sounds great. And I now work with people, some of the musicians uh, that I've worked with since, who, would, who absolutely would never dream of using delay and reverb these are like evil words Mm. but let me just tell you that new words machine is utterly drenched in delay oh yeah yeah it's like everything it's just like clump 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 And in a way, you're you're looping with the delay too, right? Is that yeah? Mm-hmm. I, I really missed that particular effects unit. I it was a Boss SE50, mm. and I and I can remember why I loaned it from Long McQuaid's, and I said to Kevin, I remember, so I, I want a very simple effects unit that an idiot can use, and he says, oh, you want to rent the Boss SE50, see if you like it, mm. and I rented it, eventually bought it, and I kept it for many many years. I lost it in and a house flood in 2005. Subsequently, I've thought about buying them, but they, they now go for ridiculous prices. And to be honest, you know, most other effects units will do what the Boss SE50 did, but it was very, very easy to use. And you could easily program the delays. And so I had a number of them 
that I programmed. At one point in time, the battery ran out on it as well because the battery, it's got a sort of the memory of the effects unit is controlled by a small lithium battery. And I didn't know this. And at one point in time, I turned it on and all my presets had gone. Uh, and that was devastating, actually, yeah. because in the course of five or six years, I'd totally relied on this thing. I only ever had two effects units. The other one was a, an Alesis Quadroverb that I still mm. got, but that needs, needs some work that Kevin actually bought me in the early days of download. Hmm. And uh, so I never really needed anything else. Mm-hmm. A Boss SE50 Quadroverb, that, that did it. But nowadays... Good God, I turn on Pro Tools. I've got access to about 7,000 effects. So. Everything. And um, if you compare those days to now, what is there anything that's a key tool that you enjoy using or misusing uh, these days in your new setup? Well, I, I still have the same principle that most of the sounds that I create are still generated uh, you know, acoustically, either with my voice or... Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, the harmonica that is currently holding up the telephone. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, you know, I mean, just, I could just turn around and go like that, you know. That's, mm. that's a rattle I bought in 1996. You know, it all starts usually with an acoustic instrument. But uh, but um, for me, the, the act of recording onto a computer is utterly liberating mm-hmm. because it's so easy and it sounds so good. Yes. And so the... Capacity to edit now is unprecedented. You know, before I was always mixing in li- in real time. So that's 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 a mm-hmm. strange thing to think about. Mm-hmm. To think that you know, the eighteen the nineteen minute track from New Words Machine was mixed in one take. Mm-hmm. Now that is that is kind of uh, there is kind of impressive quality to that, mm-hmm. even if I would say so myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now, of course. If I mixed an 18-minute piece of music, it'd probably take me about about seven or eight hours. For sure. Yeah. Because I'm just get, getting into the micro detail of it. And you know what? I love doing that. Mm-hmm. I really, really enjoy getting into the detail of the sound. Listening I mean, again and again. samples up as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm still ham-fisted. I don't really know what I'm doing, but I think there's a beauty in that as well. Um, you know, you speaking about mental health a little bit there and about creativity, um, you know, and talking about the discipline of showing up, I've found that uh, during this time, it has been hard to get to the things that typically sort of feed my soul, um, meditation practice, movement practice, um, but that there has been a, a desire to create. I hadn't made any new music in five years, and this time got me to get everything out and hook it up and start recording again. And um, it's interesting to me. I mean, you've been very prolific uh, the last 5, 10, 15 years, really. I mean, um, but it seems like this is a new phase for you. And I'm just wondering if you could say anything about uh, any, any more about what's motivating you and what that discipline of showing up in the studio every day has been given you either mentally or the the product itself um i I don't really think anything has changed you know having more personal time Mm -hmm. not having to invest as much energy into a day job is a huge advantage Mm -hmm. um but i i was one of those 
I, th- I think I think I've, I've worked with people over the years, and you, you either live to work or you work to live. Mm-hmm. I've, I, for, for years, I thought I was a kind of um, you know live to work kind of guy, mm. um, but I probably wasn't. I mean, if you invest that much time, energy, and effort, creativity into a job, then it seems logical to me that you would just translate that into whatever activity you were doing. Mm-hmm. So for me. The reason to create is to do a number of things. I think it's one to say I can do it mm-hmm. and I can do it even though I I eschew so many conventions around the making of music. Mm-hmm. Um, as, an, as a self-professed non-musician, it's my right to make music. Mm-hmm. So uh, even though I don't understand how things work necessarily. And I don't need to uh, understand the technicalities of it. It's my right to make music and it's my right to create. So that's a, I was thinking about this earlier on, you know, another thing that the lockdown has done is it's reinforced my sense of personal freedom. So I, this is why it's idiotic that people feel so angry that they can't get a tattoo or that they can't go to a pub uh, because freedom doesn't exist because of that. Freedom exists in your in your mind. It's mm-hmm. it's about how free you personally feel, you know. So it's my right to do it. That's the most important thing. Secondly, there's obvious benefits of being creative. You know, I think it's a bit like exercise. You may not necessarily look forward to doing it, but you invariably always feel good as a consequence, mm-hmm. even if you feel tired. Mm-hmm. That's your body saying, you know. I've appreciated the fact that you've actually allowed me to exercise. So I think, you know, the act of being creative gives you that sense of ability to transform something or to take something from a starting point to a finishing point. And it just so happens that I've got an outlet for it. I think um, the outlet is actually really, really important. So the reason why I've stayed prolific is because for me, it wouldn't necessarily feel as though there was as much uh, value in the doing if I didn't have a means of communicating that to others. So that's the third component of it for me. The third component is that sense of engendering a community of people who appreciate art Mm -hmm. for you know for the reasons i've just said and also to you know to reinforce the fact that the culture that we live in can be enriched by people who challenge the conventions of what is art Mm -hmm. and challenge the conventions of what is music and uh, i think i've I mean, I don't know if I've succeeded in doing that, but I think that is what I've tried to do over the course of my career, which is why I've refused to learn how to do anything. <laughs> um, and, you know, why for me, technology is a is a liberator mm-hmm. uh, because I don't know how to use it. I mean, I, I, I do know people who are very technical who also make very creative music, but to be absolutely honest, I don't know many of them. Mm. because I think there's a big difference between being a technician and being an artist. Mm-hmm. Um, I love working with technicians because they make my work sound great. Mm-hmm. But there's literally a handful of those people when it comes down to it also make great art, you know. Mm-hmm. So there's something sure. about, you know, something about having access to 
a part of you that is um, raw, that mm-hmm. is real, and giving you know opportunity to to be able to express that because to me. Mm-hmm. composition is actually really really important it's always been important it's why you know shap was 21 tracks because mm-hmm. i was trying to make compact concise music that mm-hmm. for me had a sense of purpose which is always about having a beginning a middle and an end you know it's not telling a story a narrative story like a lot of you know art does i think this is why you know if i use the words experimental which i don't particularly like but i think this is why experimental art turns people off because it uh, it doesn't necessarily have as clear and as easily digestible as a narrative as some forms of art. Mm-hmm. But I've always been drawn to that because of the sense of, well, it gives me the capacity to think and and to, you know, to feel. And um, I don't like art that directs me into those things. Sure. Point? Yeah, I do get your That's- point. And I, you know, thinking about even the title that you've decided to release a lot of your music under, right? Dead Voices on Air, uh, the title of this newly reworked version. Are are you calling it a newer words machine? Uh, Yeah, I I, I was going to say just a new words machine, but then it's too close. A newer words machine, I think that's what I'll call it. Yeah, sure. Um, But looking at both of those titles, Dead Voices on Air and A New Words Machine, they point me in a certain direction of how you interact, particularly with the voice. Um, you've used your own voice over the years in a lot of different ways. You've used other people's voices, some really incredible vocalists over the years, too. And I'm wondering if you're willing to say a word about the role of the voice in your recording process. Oh, it's Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think, I think the voice... I, the fact that I've got a voice um, means that it's a, a ready-made, accessible instrument. And actually, it's with a little bit of um, help from my electronic friends, effects mm-hmm. and <laughs> gadgets. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I can sound I can sound like an opera singer, <laughs> even <laughs> though I can't sing opera. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can sound like a bad opera singer. So it gives me an immediate access to be able to express myself. And, you know, it's a little bit like I play the trumpet very badly. And if I don't play the trumpet, I can't play a single note on the trumpet. But I tell you what, if I'm really playing it a lot and I'm working with it a lot, I do sound like a passable drunk Miles Davis, (laughs) you know. Uh Uh, circa 1972 Mm. but that's that's just because you're working with it more so the voice is exactly the same so you know i've got i suppose i I suppose especially with download because with download what you had to do was um i had to learn how to translate and transform what i was doing in in a studio which is very controlled usually Mm -hmm. through headphones Mm -hmm. into a live setting where you've got other people making very loud noise mm-hmm. and you, f- you need to find a way of being able to cut through it the, the story i heard about peter hook and joy division is the reason he played really high on the bass is because he couldn't hear himself when he played low because they were loud so you find a way of, of cutting through and of making it work 
And I suppose I learned a few uh, techniques to do that um, that work for me. I, I'm still fascinated by it. I, mm-hmm. It's definitely moved on because it moved on when I started to actually sing songs, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've actually got another isolation volume ready to release. Okay. And this is called uh, Isolation Songs because over the last couple of months I've also been doing some songs live mm. um, to the air. It's interesting. I, 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 again, during the lockdown, I did another record with Tony DePorto, who works under the name of The Gnome. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've done these releases called Gnome and Spybee. And it, it's a one-liner with Tony. Would you like to do a record? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. This time, this time, just concentrate on vocals. I said, okay. Mm-hmm. I think another time it was like, would you like to do a record? Yes. This time, no beats. I said, okay. <laughs> so uh-huh. it was, it, it was sure. very, very simple. But... Yeah, so I did this, did this album, and it's and what I mainly contributed was the voice, and uh, I started to use sort of like background vocals, mm-hmm. and then I I bought an effect that doubles my voice mm. really nicely in harmony, and I'm mm. like going, I could really get into this, you know. is so so uh, accessible mm-hmm. um, I don't like listening to my own voice mm. um, but I, I don't know who does really <laughs> well that's true uh, but when I listen to for example welcome to Shep uh, which I've heard a few times it sounds like some of the new layers are you performing new vocals is that true on that piece it is yeah because that was the easiest thing to do Um and it's it's even more so actually with uh, a new words machine because I'll give you an example with a, a new words machine. There's a track that it's called Vran and mm-hmm. it's Kevin who was actually drumming on this copper log barrel. I've actually still got it in the house. Hmm. And um, I, but I put this sample on at the end. It wasn't a sample; it was like half the track, to be honest. But mm-hmm. it, it was affected, and you couldn't really tell. But it was from a this CD that I bought in Vancouver, which was of kind of ethnic music, I think it was from Asia. And um, I no longer have that CD. And I know why, because I loaned it to Phil Weston when we did the first do- download album and he used it extensively uh, to, for samples. And mm-hmm. one of which ended up on the track called B-Hatch. And uh, so dear old Phil had that CD and I mm-hmm. don't have it. So what I did was I, I recreated because there was a vocal refrain going through the whole the whole mm-hmm. thing. So when I did a new words machine, when I did that track, I actually recreated the vocal refrain. The concept of a newer words machine, one thing that's really interesting to me is you said you'd like to work with a collaborator. And in revisiting this old material, which, as, as you say, feels a little foreign now or, or distant, you're sort of your own collaborator. Like 1994, yeah. you is the collaborator. Yeah. I, I was, except on the New Words Machine, Kevin was actually on three of the six tracks. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Which is interesting, isn't it? It's, in- it's interesting. Um, but, uh, and at the time when I recorded New Words Machine, Dead Voices in Air was actually a three-piece. Mm. But I was working, I was recording by myself because when, when we very first started, it was a three-piece. One of the guys, Clancy Dennehy, he um, actually had left by the time New Words Machine was being released and he liked one of the tracks and he asked to mix it and he did. So the mix he did is actually included on the record. Hmm. Um, I, I can't listen to that record. I can't listen to any of my old records without thinking of the people who was ar- were around me at the time. Mm-hmm. So with Shap, you know, Zev Asher, who very sadly passed away, he mm. not so long ago, he, he, he was, is on one of the tracks. Okay. So I automatically go back into the, well, this is who I knew. This is who I was working with. These are the concerts around the time that I did. Um, mm. mm-hmm. So it just opens up all of these little windows into a past that was actually very, uh, you know, very, very pleasant memories, to be honest. It's got an element of time travel to it. Yeah, for me, for me, it has big time. Yeah, because mm-hmm. yeah, you can place yourself. I can place myself, you know, exactly as to where I was when I did it, and the circumstances around the recordings, and what it also subsequently led to as well. Because New Words Machine was really my introduction to Kevin. Mm. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know if I've told this story when I've been waffling online but basically what happened is uh um when i first moved to vancouver i i listened to a a college radio station and it was called citr and it was the college radio for university of british columbia and they did a show called mechanical object noise i can even remember it i think it was on a monday at one one p.m in the afternoon Hmm. and uh i sent a tape to the lady who was running the show, who was called June Scoodler. And when she got that tape, she played it, and she just happened that day to bump into Kevin Key, who about a year before that had put a Soviet France show on in Vancouver and had given them some studio time. Hmm. Uh, But I I wasn't in the band then. I'd left before they toured the States. But she just happened to see Kevin Key. She said, I've met Hmm. this guy, and he used to be in Soviet France. He says, no way, you know, give him my number so i did i contacted him so you know the doing of the music the sending it to a radio show you know the playing of it led me within weeks to get to know kevin and that's obviously the start of a friendship that goes back of um close to 30 years serendipity so uh, yeah yeah that's but that's how it is that's mm-hmm. how it always is yeah you know another another crazy story is I was in um, New York and hanging out with a friend who uh, was on the download tour, actually, 96. He lived on the east, in the East Village. And it was, at that time, it probably still is in, in bits of it. Bits of it were really, really rough. I mean, he actually lived in, in a part of the house where the swans used to rehearse. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and uh, he said, I've got this friend. He's called Khan and he's like this techno guy. Do you want to go and meet him? So I went to meet him and it turns out that Khan um, it was quite well known, um, had a manager and he says, that's funny because my manager's German but he lives in Vancouver because I told him I was from, from Vancouver and he says, I says, no way. And he says, uh, he's also involved with Khan. Huh. I'm like going, um, 
really? Can, <laughs> can you give me his number? Mm-hmm. So via Khan, I met a German guy who was living in Vancouver called Tom Ziegler, who then became my manager, who was managing at the time Holger, Holger Chukai, uh, hmm. Michael Rotter, Dieter Merbius. I think he was involved wow. with Faust for a while. And That's wild. Because of, because of my friend Sheldon, because of his link to Khan, because of Khan's link to Tom, because of Tom's link to Khan, I ended up playing and being part of Michael Caroli's band <laughs> it, with it with can when and was like, that that's uh it's probably nine um well it started in 96 and then i started to work with tom in about 97 okay and then it all started after that i mean uh, yeah you know uh, i mean it ended up i mean i was part of the can solo projects so i was part of michael caroli's band f- for a year and a half before he passed away and uh hmm. Um, so, but most of the work there was about 99, 19, well, it was 1999. Yeah. But the year before, I, I think it was the year before that we toured the States with, with Damo Suzuki and Michael Caroli. So it was just, that's, yeah. but that's how it works. You see, it works because of community of developing links of, uh, it didn't work because I was writing letters to Can saying, please, can I play with you? Right. <laughs> you know? Right, right, right. If it was through uh, people. Yeah, yeah. Um, since you've mentioned yeah. Cannes and Zovia France also, I was wondering about um, the role of ethnological forgery or what uh, <laughs> Eno's group was calling fourth world. Yeah. You know, in the music at that time, uh, Zovia France and your early records, and even to this day, it seems like there's a sense of sacred music in your work at times. And there's also kind of layering that within a larger soundscape, uh, sometimes quite unsettling or noisy. And I'm just wondering, you know, what is it that we're summoning when we bring some of these non-Western ideas into our experimentation and into into our soundscapes? Um, I... I don't know. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> is the uh, is the honest answer. Mm-hmm. I think uh I think there's there's two thoughts that come to mind. The first is is that I believe that Can were very sincere in what they did around the ethnological forgery series. Mm-hmm. But it was also firmly tongue in cheek. Mm-hmm. You know, they had a especially Holger uh very very well defined slightly surrealistic sense of humor. Mm-hmm. And it came out in that series, mm-hmm. you know, I, which I thought was absolutely brilliant. But you know, um, I think I think also they they did travel down the path of let's make music with whatever's around us. Yeah. Um, so they had you know in Michael Caroli's home studio, uh, he had a, a bunch of the old instruments that he. In fact, I've got one here because he gave it to me. Um, a bunch of old eth- ethnic instruments that they collected over the years that they probably used in the ethnological forgery series but it's it's very gentle it's a very gentle affectionate misappropriation of 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 the original intent that the music that was created within now for some that's a problem so for example um uh, i didn't know this but ken marshall uh i think it was ken when we were working recording the ice of stanley payne the the track Sidewinder, he did a remix and I and I I'm not even I'm not even sure I've got a copy of it to be honest, because um 
Uh, he did a remix. I think it was called Sidewinder Snake. Hmm. And what he did was he sampled uh, something he heard on the radio that somebody said, Ken, you can't use this. This is Peter Gabriel. Mm. And apparently apparently it was from, because he didn't know that it was Peter Gabriel. He just heard it on the on the music and it was, I don't know what it was. I think it was from, did he do the, the soundtrack to a film called The Passion of Christ or The Last, Last Temptation of Christ? That could be Something it. like that. I think Kevin might have released a version of it at some point. Uh, oh, really? Called okay. uh, Left the Radio On, he called it. Oh, uh, really? <laughs> well, I've probably got that. I've probably got it. But I'm... Somebody at the record company heard this and said, "This is Peter Gabriel. You can't use it. You're gonna have to ask. You're gonna have to ask Peter mm-hmm. Gabriel's permission." And apparently they did. And he, I don't know if it was him, you know, somebody who worked for him or his record company. But the the message that we got back was, "No, we can't use it because mm. it's sacred music, and it would be, it didn't feel right that it was being used in a different context." Mm. But that's what the Ethnological Forgery series did. Sure, I mean, it took music from outside of the context that it was originally created within, which was probably very meaningful mm-hmm. and had a lot of spiritual, you know, intent. Mm-hmm. And it used it in a completely different way. So, mm-hmm. and that's exactly what the post-industrial bands did, you know. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's exactly what Throbbing Gristle, sorry, Psychic TV did. Mm-hmm. They, they did this really nice album that I think came as a free album with their first ever release. Hmm. And it was all this, you know, I don't, I don't know if it was real or not, but banging of Tibetan thigh bones and mm. long trumpets. Hmm. And I thought it was, I thought it was really great. Um, but it's the same idea, isn't it? It's taking this kind of, in this case, Tibetan sacred music. Mm-hmm. I mean, 23 Skidoo did it as well. Mm-hmm. They were, they were, they were master gamelan musicians, actually, if you listen yeah. to their early stuff. I mean, yeah. They could really play that stuff. Yeah. But it's taking it from an original context and it's like putting it into a completely different place. And I feel that's okay. I feel it's okay. Yeah. In the same way that I've used Christian music as well. I mean, Mm -hmm. I've used hymns. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's some incredibly beautiful music. Absolutely. Um, And it's just an abstraction of it. You know, you're not utilizing it in a in a mocking way in fact it's that's right i think it's actually very much respectful of the traditions in which it was actually mm-hmm. created to share a little um, bit of my story with that you know i was raised um christian my dad uh was a pastor growing up he's a hospice chaplain now and um you know the the church didn't really resonate with me and uh two two things about the music you were making at that time when I first heard it as a teenager was one, uh, the piece about, you know, I'm not a musician, but as you were just saying, it's my right. That really kind of woke me up because I'd always been no good at the piano or the guitar. But second of all, in searching for a meaningful way to be spiritual and to have a practice and to relate to the divine, the feeling 
on those first two download records and also throughout your entire career of bringing this sense of the sacred into the music really opened my eyes to other possibilities of relating to different kinds of spiritual practice and that sort of thing. Um, it's not, I find that really interesting. Um, I, I would say, I would say, you know, basically, basically speaking, I, I I'm not religious in mm-hmm. the slightest. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still recognize the importance of feelings of spirituality, you know, mm-hmm. and recognizing and certainly respecting the rights of others mm-hmm. to practice in the way that they feel is right for mm-hmm. them. And yet, if you look at the, you know, various religions around the world, music was always a tool that they used, mm-hmm. wasn't it? It was always something that was linked to this celebration or recognition of mm. who they were. So it's it's deeply rooted into our culture, isn't it? It is. Um, you know, reading uh, an interview about those legendary furnace sessions and just thinking about a newer words machine, I saw you mentioned the work of Robert Graves. Um, oh, yeah. I've read his uh, Greek mythology and his translation of The Golden Ass, but I have not read The White Goddess, which is the book you mentioned in that uh, interview. I'm, I'm curious if, if that is still uh, something you think about and if you'd be willing to tell the listeners anything about that text. I've, well, it'd be interesting to know if anybody has read that book. <laughs> because, uh-huh. uh, you know, it's, it's pretty impenetrable. Uh, mm. I think the reason why I first uh, became aware of that was through Ben in Soviet France, because I probably asked him one of those sort of fanboy questions when I first started to work with him. It's about, where do you get the titles from? The titles are really interesting. He says, well, we just made them up, but some of them are kind of made up words from this book called The White Goddess by Robert Graves. Hmm. And so I got a copy and I can see exactly where it's coming from because basically uh, I can't re- really remember what it's all about, except you know, the thing that attracted me to it is uh, this analysis of language Hmm. and the etiology of words. An ancient, I think it's British, system of counting that shepherds used, Yantan Tethera, one, two, three, Hmm. um, really fascinated me because that was a language that was deeply linked to where I'm from. Um, And I actually really got into this opera by... Harrison Burt Whistle and the libretto was done by a, a poet. I'm not sure if he's still alive, actually. Tony Harrison, who was from the northeast, well, from the north of England, certainly lived in Newcastle, but uh, I think he was from Leeds originally. Um, he'd done the libretto for the opera, and when it was sung, they s- sung it in a northern accent, which I mm. just thought was great. Mm-hmm. You know, um, yeah, so that book is really just this kind of like um, I'm sure I'm sure there's um, way more levels to it, mm-hmm. but I, uh, I it's the kind of book when I feel inspired I'll pick it up, flick through it, mm. look at you know some of the the words and just feel uh, well kind of enwrapped in them. To be honest, mm. I get really stimulated by words. I, I, I work. It took me many many years to. To, to work out why I don't read books particularly easily. Mm-hmm. Because what happens is I'll start reading a book 
become absolutely engrossed in one idea and then say, well, I've read the book. Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> what could it possibly give me? <laughs> what more could it possibly give me? You know, because uh-huh. I'm not really into sort of the narrative. Sure. I'm more into the kind of what it means to me, um, which is why I've always been. I'm, I think I read more poetry than anything else. Uh, you see, I mean, at any one point in time, I've usually got poetry books around. You know. In listening to your work, both then and now, um, it often puts me in the way of sort of a not not I don't want to overinflate this but there's there's a trance element or a meditative state element uh, that it invokes in me and I'm curious what it's like as you're creating these things you know with uh, some of the pieces on a newer words machine being you know near 20 minutes long uh, when you get into the zone of creating these pieces um, I'm I'm curious about your own mental state while you're doing that. Uh, reflective um, mm. is the word that comes to mind. I I uh, find myself being very easily taken to a place that I find deeply um, rewarding by mm. uh, intense listening, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I discovered that during the time of doing. Certainly around that time, I don't know when it was, when it was, if it was when I was doing the, the New Words Machine, but I, I definitely remember feeling that, which is, you know, um, getting into a zone and then just sticking with it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was around that time because I accidentally discovered phase shifting, you know, I then mm-hmm. worked out that actually Steve Reich had kind of like coined that about 40 years before. <laughs> <laughs> just by, by, by playing the same note one slightly behind each other which he did very successfully to begin with with tapes and then Mm -hmm. by clapping and by drums but you get this really beautiful kind of like you know phase thing going on and i could find myself listening to something like you know that in headphones for literally hours Mm -hmm. and um i mean i have Mm. released a couple of things that are an hour long I just find myself being, you know, uh, I, I do find myself going into a very sort of deep, reflective 
meditative kind of uh, state. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel enriched by it. Mm-hmm. I, for me, it's all, it's all about the act of, it's all about the act of listening. Mm-hmm. And if you, it, there's a difference between a tone that you that I feel, because it's very personal, this isn't it? But I feel connected to and which resonates for me in a tone that I find very annoying mm-hmm. uh, or irritating. Mm-hmm. So I could no, I could no more sit through. A, I was going to. Um, I won't, I, I won't, I won't isolate one particular artist, but I can no longer sit through a performance of ear splitting, uh, nausea inducing noise than I, than I could, you know, putting my head in a dishwasher. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but it, it just doesn't do it for me. But for some people, you know, uh, some, some people that's their idea of, um, you know, joy, isn't it? Sure. Um, the, the sounds you'd want to listen to for an hour. Are there any words that come to mind to describe the qualities of those tones and how they differentiate from noise? Um, well, this is a strange one, isn't it? Harmonic. Um, so it's got to have a melodic. It's got to have a, a content for me mm-hmm. that I feel is soothing in some kind of way. So even if even if there are sounds in and around it that are abrasive or um, scratchy, you know, because I I liked, I mean I like radio sound a lot as well, and there's an abrasive quality to that. Uh, it's the kind I can't I love that I can't quite work out what people are saying feel. Mm-hmm. I've always I've always felt excited about that with lyrics, you know, as well. So I can't really quite work out what they're saying. But it feels really interesting. Yeah, is is my ideal kind of zone to be in, and I think that's. It doesn't mm. matter if it's lyrical music or melodic music. For me, it's got to have a. It's got to have some sort of content that, that draws me in. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm I'm still amazed that anybody would find whatever I did ball back all of those years worthy of listening to. You mm. know, because for many years I just I couldn't. I you know I thought. All I can hear with New Words Machine is the hiss from hmm. the tape that it was mm-hmm. recording on. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and I heard that with, actually, but I actually heard more of that on Shap mm, than I did on New Words sound. Machine, which is really, yeah, which is really surprising because Shap was actually professionally engineered. Hmm. Mm-hmm. We actually, I actually took the raw sounds to a studio in Chicago at Invisible, and they actually brought in a really good sound engineer to. You know, to make sure that we were capturing them as well as I could, and they're probably hot. The signals are probably hotter mm-hmm. or something. But so just they just mm-hmm. sounded like there was more tapis. But uh, but you know, it makes it makes those records sound really warm too. So there's a there's a positive quality to that. Warmth. There you go. Mm-hmm. Um, warmth, even in a cold place. Mm. Uh, some of so, I tell you, there's a there is a guy, and I haven't. I've got quite a lot of his stuff, but it's not as though I've gone out and sort of like um, bought everything he's ever done. But Thomas Kerner, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, I mean, some of some of the stuff that he's done is just glacial. It's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. That's true. I first heard him because a friend of mine called Matt in Vancouver gave me as a present one of his albums, hmm. and I can remember having it on. Mm. And a friend of mine called Alex Varty came around, who's a guitarist and a writer. 
and uh, we're going to do some recording together. And I had it on in the background, and he was like, he was just sat there. And he was very quiet. Hmm. And he said, this is incredible because what it's actually making me do is feel more attentive to the sounds around me. So he says, suddenly the sounds of the city in the background sound enveloped into the music and it's all beautiful. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yes. I, I hate to use the word soundscape because it's another word that means absolutely nothing. That's true. You know, really. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. It's just a... But it's that kind of sense of creating a sound that is environmental. And the other person I know who does that impeccably well is Robert Hampson. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm a friend of Robert's. And I actually, I actually was a really fortunate i was actually able to put a show of his on uh in hmm. poland a few years ago was that with and, uh maine or was no. it solo oh, yeah it was sorry yes it was it was maine okay um but it was yeah it was just him i mean maine is largely by and large just him uh and it was fantastic it was in a synagogue and we, we made it as dark as possible and i projected some of my photographs onto a black screen at the back so he just got these flickers. But he had this surround sound system. Uh, so there was like, I think, six or seven speakers around the whole of the hall. And so you got this real sense of, you know, being enveloped into this beautiful environment. And some of the sounds were abrasive and some of the sounds were kind of haunting and uh, some of the sounds were very pleasant. But it was a, it was a rich, immersive environment. And I think that's what Alex Varty was getting at. Suddenly, this Thomas Kerner music, uh, what it managed to do is it managed to allow the rest of the environment to come into it. And in a and way, about it, we're back to listening. You know, it's it's like yeah, it invites yeah. listening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I mean, the biggest lesson that I've learned through, I mean, it's without, without doubt, the best and the most important lesson that I've learned in the whole of my career is... The, the the vital importance of of listening, especially as an improviser. Mm. Um, and I can remember when I did my first ever concert with um, the Cansola on Cansola projects. It was in Berlin. I think we played, and then Holger played, and then you know Ermin did a set, and Jackie did a set. Hmm. Um, but um, I can remember Holger coming up to me afterwards. He said, "Your sounds are great. Your sounds are great, but you play too much. You play too much." Mm. I says, "Oh, you know, right." Um, <laughs> what do you mean? He says, just listen to the holes in the music. Mm. Listen to the holes in the music. And they mm. used to talk about this a lot, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what what I think good improvisational musicians do. They, It's like the Miles Davis, you know. You, have, you watch videos of Miles, especially during the period that I really, really, really love, which is the, the freaky, weird mm-hmm. funk period. Uh mm-hmm. And he'll come onto the stage and he won't blow a note for five minutes. And he's listening. Mm -hmm. And he's listening for the right moment Mm -hmm. to intervene. Because whatever you do as a musician, it's an intervention, isn't it? It has Mm -hmm. an impact. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you make a note or play a note, it resonates and it impacts. And it's never the same again. Mm -hmm. Which is why I've always been drawn to minimal music as well. It it strikes me that there's a connection here. So... Um, my wife is a psychologist and does therapy uh, for her job, and uh, I know that your your career for many years was in some form of therapy. 
And it, it strikes me that listening is something that both of those worlds have in common. You know, that there's there's listening in this these sound worlds, this environmental music that you're talking of. And there's also listening in therapy, right? There's the therapeutic um, act of listening yeah. to someone yeah. and being listened to. Um, I'm curious if you see any uh, connection or theme there between uh, creative life and, and work life. Uh, not not really. I mm. mean, uh, I, I think for me it's even more basic than that. I think the essential... Um, an essential, an essential ingredient in the in the art of being a human being is the ability to listen to other people, um, because from listening comes understanding, and from understanding should come empathy. Mm-hmm. And I, I and I think some of us, including me, have to work really hard to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think over the years, and this is not really in relation to my work or to my life as an artist. It's just me becoming more aware of the fact that because I'm one of those people that gets really excited and energized by being around others, that I can sometimes um, dominate conversations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sure. And as soon as you do that, of course, you're going into the zone of not potentially not listening to people. So for me, it's even more fundamental because at the heart of in every interaction should be the desire to want to listen to what another person is saying to you. Mm. And sometimes that's really difficult because of the way that we talk to each other. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not always easy. There's a lovely quote, isn't it? It's something like, I can't hear you for the volume. I can't, I can't hear you for the gist of it is, I can't hear you because you're talking too loudly. Mm-hmm. I can't hear um, you over your own voice or something. Yeah, something like that. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's, I've always um, c- considered myself first and foremost to be an improvising musician. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, I was t- we, Kevin and I were talking about this last night, and I totally agree with him. We were, we were, t- we were saying just how um, in the course of your life, it's re- literally only a handful of people that you'll work with where you feel you've got such a connection you don't even need to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And I totally agree with him. For me, it is a handful, and he's one of them. Phil was another one. Mm-hmm. And then my friends, Richard and Mark Sanderson, who I've worked with recently under the name Solaris, because they were the first band. And they were the mm. guys I, I, really, I really learned how to make music with. Mm-hmm. When we get together now, you know, we can play together for five hours. And I tell you, virtually every note of what is recorded, hmm. as far as I'm concerned, is, is great. Mm. And it, it doesn't, it may not sound great, <laughs> it might be rubbish, mm-hmm. but the sense of, satisfaction that we get from working together is because of the fact that we've actually it's like a it's like a runner or a cyclist you put the miles in in order to become an effective athlete you've got to put the miles in Mm -hmm. and for me improvisation is all about putting the miles becoming a good improviser it's all about putting the miles in you might be an instinctively good improviser Mm. but it's not this you know you you have to want to be in the same space as another person you have to want to interact and as a consequence you you suffer the consequence of things not working can you can you tell me anything about the um the the sort of guided meditation almost that uh starts off the track sunny sea on eyes of stanley Payne. <laughs> found words hmm. people have yeah. good clean spirits yeah yeah i found the words i literally found the words written on a piece of paper i don't know where i found them hmm. um 
what I would do with download um, uh, is that often when I was, I mean, there's no way that was improvised. The bedrock of that track was definitely improvised. But at some point in time, one of us, probably Kevin, would say, you know, what I think would work over the top of this, like a piece of spoken word. Mm. And then I'd off very often have to kind of come up with the words quickly. So for, I don't know about that one. I can't, I can't actually remember where I found the words. Mm-hmm. But um, but I do know, for example, <laughs> this, uh, the, the song Glassblower off the Isis Stanley Payne. I did the vocals for that in, 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 in one evening. And it was the last track we worked on before the record was finished. And it was... Uh, it was actually in Brian Brian Ad, Adams's home studio hmm. in North Vancouver, hmm. and there was a copy of the local newspaper called the Province, and um, it was Ken and Anthony Valsic. You've got to come up with some words, Mark, for this song. Come up with some words, <laughs> and it's like, okay, where do I find words? I'm looking at the newspaper, <laughs> mm-hmm. and there's an article about a Scud attack, you know, Scud missile attack, mm-hmm. in, into Israel, mm. and I'm like reading the words and I'm like saying right okay scud attack but I don't like the word I'll, I'll add the word reverse to it because I really like that scud attack reverse and then I was and I probably and I think the second line is battery place nocturne and I think I was probably carrying around with me a, a book at the time with Joseph Boyce's stuff in it and I can tell you he talked about batteries a lot hmm but it's the Ger- German spelling of it with an I-E at the end. Mm. It's like battery place nocturne. Hmm. It's like um, suddenly, you know, I go from being asked to create words to finding a copy of the province newspaper to cutting little bits out of it. Well, not literally cutting it out, mm-hmm. but, you know, nicking bits of the words. Yeah. And then you sing it. And then suddenly folks say, well, what, what is it about? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Sure. I can remember this vividly. It, it, but it becomes the meaning of it becomes something else when people start to listen to it. So, mm-hmm. so network wanted to do a video of it, and which would go to much, much music, the Canadian equivalent of MTV, mm-hmm. and and they funded it, and it was produced by Bill Morrison and hmm. one of the the guys from Network before it was um, before it went out. He said, "What's this about? What's this about?" <laughs> and I said. Um, well, it's about, you know, um, it's about the idiocy of religion. Mm. It's like, what kind of religion? Well, I don't know. It's, in this case, it was about a, a missile attack on Israel and their response to it. He says, you can't use that. You can't use that. Oh, my the head goodness. Of- mm. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I go, oh, it's not. Look, it's, it's not about Jew- right. Judaism. This is not about, you know. For sure. Um, it's It's, but, you know. The meaning becomes something different. Do you get my point? I do. Um, it's sort of it's and, uh, free once you put it out there. It's released. Well, I, I, I mean, I actually thought the question was stupid. What this is? What is this about? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. I mean, you wouldn't say you know you wouldn't go to Wire and say um, you know what is uh, what is I am the fly about? Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's yeah. That's a good I point. Mean, it's about you know what is marooned about you know. Uh, what is kidney bingos about? Mm-hmm. You wouldn't ask them because <laughs> obviously it's like there isn't a, there isn't a logical answer, is there? Mm-hmm. That's true. Because that's what that's what. Um, no, I'm not saying I'm a poet, but that's what poetry does. Mm-hmm. And if there yeah. was an answer, it might ruin it, right? Yeah. If it was, it would ruin it because. Mm-hmm. But then 
most songs are ruined, aren't they? Because most songs' narrative and most songs, don't get me wrong, there's some fantastic narrative uh, songwriters and storytellers, but mm-hmm. I'm not drawn to that. I'm mm-hmm. not drawn to telling a story through what I do. Mm-hmm. The power always lies in the listener. Mm-hmm. So when the listener goes away and says, well, I think this is about X, Y, and Z, I'm like going, well, it is then, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's what you make of it. So for me, the meaning of I am the fly or marooned by wire Mm -hmm. might be totally different to what your understanding of the meaning is. And you know what? That's brilliant. And if it's it's managed to do that, then what else could the artist hope for? Mm -hmm. You've you've allowed somebody to develop their own world of interpretation based on, you know, a number of elements. And it's about them taking the time, the energy, having the creativity to think about what it actually means to them. And that's liberating to me. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It, you know, it's about liberating the imagination. Through the act of listening or tying yes. it to that. Yeah. Yes. Um, I typically try to include in this podcast something that's a suggestion to people who want to create or people who want to... Um, adapt some element of what's being discussed into their personal life. Uh, Do you have any listening exercises or ways that you approach listening that I could uh, pass on to listeners? Oh boy. Um, I think if any, if anything, it's really, really simple. Find yourself in a place where you can concentrate and a modern life is so, I mean, it's one of the things that I've enjoyed about lockdown. It's actually enabled me to slow down to the point where pretty much like most people now, I, I imagine uh, even understanding on a, what day of the week it is is a challenge, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, the weekends don't feel like the weekends anymore because most of the rituals that I did on a weekend are not happening at the moment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like like soccer, you know, mm-hmm. it's just not happening. Find yourself in a place where you can concentrate. For me, that usually means cutting out uh, some of the distractions of what's going on around you. And that um, that helps me. But then I, I, I don't live by those rules myself. So, you know, I, I very often will put a piece of music on when I'm doing something else. And, and then, the, you know... I did an I did a I did some work with Simon Fisher Turner, uh, who who is a lovely lovely man, has done some fantastic work over the years, especially as, especially known for the soundtracks he did for Derek Jarman films. But uh, I remember Simon saying he always used to do the vacuum into Throbbing Gristle. <laughs> <laughs> Just found that hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like hamburger lady. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's um, great. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, so I don't I think it's it, you know what's 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 difficult is that I think if I think my one piece of advice was 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 follow your own initiative. So what works for you? Find out what works for you. Mm-hmm. By definition to me that means you need to explore. You need to find out you know a mechanism that that works and feels right for you. Mm. And um Another one of my favorite bands, totally unrelated to kind of like particularly strange music with Husker Du. Mm-hmm. There's a line from a Husker Du song, but don't pay any attention to me. Grant Hartley says, 
find out who you really are. Mm. And then he says, but don't pay any attention to me. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, that's a great philosophy. Mm-hmm. Find out who you really are. Mm-hmm. But don't don't listen to what I've got to say. <laughs> For sure. That's great. Two more questions. Uh, one, I just have to ask about it because it's one of my favorite pieces of music is uh, the album The War Against that you did with Robin's Story as oh, Reform right, Faction. Yeah. And I just, yeah. I'd love to hear anything at all you're willing to share about that record or new work with Robin or any anything. I, I love working with Robin. It's one of those guys where we get together, we could literally record a triple album in a day, you know. Mm. It's, uh, although the triple album that we did actually did take quite a lot longer than that. Because mm-hmm. uh, it's, uh, it's more shorter pieces. But um, at that point in time, most of the source material was created by us improvising together. Mm. So we would work together, be in the same space, and then either he or I or both of us would take it away and then work on it. Mm. But sometimes it gets sometimes it gets really confusing if you both take it away, yeah. uh, because you end up with um, sometimes wildly different versions, which is which is okay of the same pieces of music or mm-hmm. slightly different versions of the same pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do, you know the. The track Hollerite, uh, we, we've actually done live quite a lot because it sort of resonates. No, it resonates with others because I can't remember the name of this uh, German label, but they actually put out a version of that on a beautiful uh, 12-inch single. Hmm. It was part of a, bo- a box set. Hmm. I can't remember the name of the label. It's really, really well done. Wow. Um, and the reason they approached us is because of that track. Wow. Robin is another one of those people, one of those handful of people who I could, um, you know, quite actually I could quite quite gladly... Uh, go away to a desert island and just make music with him and feel mm. probably really happy. Mm. I've really enjoyed all three of the B-Hatch records. Is there any uh, material with, with Phil in the archive that could see the light of day? Uh, not not really from B-Hatch because mm-hmm. uh, pretty much everything we did, we actually finished. Okay. So, you know, when we started the project, uh, I'd send stuff to Phil and he'd send stuff to me. And we pretty much used it all. Um, a little while ago, I put out a compilation called Colony of different versions of some of the B-Hatch materials. Hmm. And there was one or, one or two new unreleased things on that. But oh, I haven't heard that yet. Yeah, it's on it's, well, it's on the Bandcamp. Okay. Uh, B-Hatch. B-Hatch uh, Bandcamp. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. I, I, I tried to um, um, demonstrate how the original tracks that Phil sent to me had influenced the creation of the finished pieces. So you get instrumental versions of some of the stuff that I later did vocals on. 
for example. There is another album that features Phil mm. uh, because he not long before he died he'd done some recording with a friend of his called Jesse Creed from Vancouver mm. and um, I've, I know Jesse as well but after Phil passed away we were we were chatting and he says well I've got this stuff Mark uh, it was never finished and I wonder if I sent it to you you know do you think you, you could listen to it and see what you could do with it so he sent it to me and I think I immediately worked on it and we finished it and it's going to get released on Cold Spring Records within the next couple of months as a CD. Um, I'm not sitting on a lot of vast Mm -hmm. resources really in terms of stuff that we did. Sure. Do you think you and Kevin would ever do any material to get new material together? Well, yes. Um, We've, we've, we've talked about doing it. Um, Mm -hmm. On the live chat, somebody said, would you do that? And Kevin said, Hey, Mark, let's tour together. Yeah. He said, will you say yes now? And I said, yes, I'll say yes now. So mm. he, hasn't right. for, he hasn't forgotten about it. Even last night we were talking about it as well. So That's great. Um, so, yes. I, you know, we do have something. And mm. uh, there is a, a kind of quality to... We've got our own way of working together, both Kevin and I. And there is magic in it, as far as I'm concerned, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Uh, yeah, you know, it's one of those wait and see things, Adam. Um, for sure, that makes sense. For me, it's very important that I work with Kevin, mm-hmm. um, and in part, in part because of the people we've lost, you know. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Um, but not that's not the only reason. But um, sure, da- download was always unfinished business for me. Mm. Uh, when we we played live again for the first time, it was in two thousand and ten in Dallas, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a very magical moment to be on the stage with both of them again. Mm. So, uh, you know, we probably did that about 15 times over the next couple of years. Wow. Uh, uh, the last time was in Moscow, actually. Okay. It's the last show we ever did together. Mm. Um, so, yeah. It's, um, and that's all of our love and respect to Phil, too. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, what a guy. Yeah, he's always there. So, mm-hmm. and... Um, uh, one of the one of the very um, touching and beautiful things about uh, Phil's passing is that I've become very close to his family as well, which mm. I am really, um, really grateful for because they're they're incredible people. I have to say, mm. just lovely, smart, wise, um, and good good friends. 
that's that's how, that's how I feel about it. That's beautiful. I think. Um... First of all, I just want to thank you for all this time and uh, for engaging in the conversation with someone we've never met face to face. So I appreciate your trust there. Um, well, you are most welcome. I really appreciate you going live on Facebook and sharing your work the way you have. Um, I think it takes a certain level of vulnerability and again, uh, commitment or discipline, as you were saying, uh, to do that. So from myself and uh, many of the other listeners uh, there and on Bandcamp, uh, we want to thank you for that. You're very welcome. I, I, in fact, I wouldn't do it if if uh, if I didn't feel that people wanted me to do it. <laughs> and uh, you know, you you have a massive amount of work on Bandcamp, and uh, you know, as someone who's been following you for 15 or so years now, there's even been a few releases in the last year or two that I haven't heard yet. You did a series of like, uh, of gates into Tempest yeah. Grow, yeah. of Silence for the Sea. I haven't even uh, delved into those yet, but I really want to encourage listeners to get on your Bandcamp page and explore. Um, do you have any, uh, any releases you feel like uh, haven't got enough attention you want to direct people to other than the new album? Actually, the stuff that I've been doing over the last couple of years, I'm very satisfied with. Um, I think it, the beauty is in sort of, you know, like like jumping in and seeing if you, you know, uh, the, the great thing on Bandcamp mm-hmm. is you can listen to stuff before you buy it, right? So, so you that's can true. actually this is, listen yeah. to stuff and not buy it. That's okay as well. Mm-hmm. That's uh, true. Yeah, so, you know, mm-hmm. you just that, jump in. But I am particularly happy with the things that I've been doing over the last few years. All of the mm-hmm. antecedents to the sounds, you know, since New Words Machine on, are there. They're just, I think, I think if anything, I'm, mm-hmm. I've, I've gotten better at it. So, I mean, I'm really into the collaborations I'm doing as well. At the moment, there's loads. So, I think it's, you know, most of those relationships develop out of I don't know how, you know, work with a guy called Anatoly Grimberg, who lives in Moscow and uh, totally enjoying it. He was mastering some of my stuff for a label and, and he was, very kindly doing mastering for me for free, which is just wonderful. And uh, I, I asked him to send me some music and I, I was prepared to not like it. But when I heard it, because a lot of the stuff that people send me, I don't actually like, you know, but, uh, there was a quality to, to what he was doing that I was just so impressed with. It's just, you see, he's got an incredible palette and uh, very dynamic. And I've mm-hmm. got this album coming out another album under the name Grizzly Step with uh, the remarkable human being that is David Thrussell. Uh, and uh, mm. that's coming out on a label called Remission Entertainment. They actually discovered on Facebook, um, believe it or not. And uh, hmm. the guy that has the label, Wes, is a friend of mine and on Facebook, but I didn't really know him, but I just reached out to him. He says, yeah, I'll do this. So it's like, you know, Community. Hmm. It's all about community. That's why. I, that's why I'm reaching out now because I actually think right now, community matters more than ever. You know, it's about building on mm-hmm. and developing that sense of hope, positivity. You know, the ability for us to be able to kind of continue to work together. This week or last week, I forget now. I was actually supposed to be in the states doing some concerts, and um, obviously it, mm. that got knocked on the head. But um, mm-hmm. over the last couple of months, I've 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 
sharpened up my life skills. <laughs> so mm. so if, mm-hmm. if and when the gates open again, um, I'll be over there. It That does strike me as one of the, you know, it's hard to say silver lining of a pandemic, uh, just to say that phrase, but for me uh, personally, you know, I was working two jobs and, uh, you know, working during the day, working at night and just kind of caught in the busyness of things and also the lanes that I had allowed myself to kind of get in. And so, for example, even just the act of having the conversation we've just had uh, very likely wouldn't have happened I, uh, if I hadn't have had a major adjustment of life. I, I agree. Know? I feel I feel the same. And um everybody's saying the same thing at the moment aren't they? how are you well things are strange aren't they well guess what that's probably what it feels like to be in the middle of a global pandemic but uh, uh, because exactly. nobody yep. my 85 year old stepdad keeps saying you know I've never lived through anything like this before and he, and he was he did live through the second world war so it's like you know it's not the same as it's mm-hmm. not the same as a war uh, but mm-hmm. it's uh, it is a it is a strange time and and, and and I think the way that we work through this is by, you know, finding finding a route that works. And uh, so I, mm-hmm. I agree. I, I actually I actually feel there are times when I actually feel more hopeful for humanity mm. as a consequence of what is going on. Mm. But this is the horror of mm. what's going on politically is overwhelming um, um, most mm-hmm. of the time. It is. So we'll see. Uh, I I do think mm-hmm. you know we have a habit of uh, of bouncing back and uh, we're a lot, we're all a lot more resilient than we actually think we are. So I don't know. Let's try mm-hmm. and you know, the planet's had a good time to breathe, which is nice as well. Yes, that's great. Let's see. We'll see what happens. That's true. Uh, well said. Mm-hmm.